At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. This is Off Track with Hinch and Rossi. What's up, people of the internet, the interwebs, the dark web? It's a fad. Don't invest. The, the interwebs? Yeah. I think it's a... The dot-com era, I mean, if it was going to happen, it would have already happened by now. I think the internet is the Enron of the internet. It's the Bitcoin of the no, Bitcoin. still doing okay, though. I don't is know it, if, though? I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't it, know what it, Bitcoin it isn't is. at all. I don't even Actually, know what Bitcoin is. Um, anyways, guys, welcome to Off Track with Hinch and Rossi. I am the opposite of James Hinchcliffe, i.e. <laughs> tall, not Canadian, and uh, with less of a beard. I am all of the things that he just said he was not. So yeah, that's me. I, don't, I guess I'm Hinch. And we're happy that you're here with us. We also have producer Thim. How's it going, everybody? Here at the compound in Los Angeles. You know they can't answer you, right? So asking questions into the microphone, Thim, is pretty redundant. I mean, they could follow me on Twitter. They're not going to do that. Or you could definitely ask Tim questions at ask at offtrackpod.com. That's true. Or you could call them at 317-731-2372. So yep. there's a lot of different ways you can get in touch with them. Um, we don't recommend it, but they're <laughs> there for you. I would love any human contact at all. Yeah, uh, this, is, this is through social media, so it's not quite really... Quite lonely. It's not really human contact. We're also on social media, Twitter and Instagram. Ask uh, Off Track. Ask Off Track on both, both platforms. Exactly. So, without further ado, we're going to talk about our next guest. He was someone who is very involved in things that you would have heard on the radio. Now, especially if you subscribe to Sirius XM 90s on 9. True. True. Speaking of subscriptions, you should go to castbox.fm and subscribe to Off Track with Hinch and Rossi. But I know you may think I'm crazy, but I'm not crazy. I'm just a little unwell. I see what uh, you did there. You, That's clever. Yeah. You get that? Yeah. You see what I did there? It's actually a fantastic kind of parlay into what we're talking about. Mm. Great. If people don't realize, Unwell is a song by Matchbox 20. I've heard of them. In, in the song Unwell, there is some you know guitar playing that happens. Mm-hmm. And the person that we got to talk to not only was involved in the original beginnings of Matchbox 20 and was a part of their first three records, Mm -hmm. but on top of that has something now called Creationville and is something that I've just heard about and understood and frankly have become a big fan of. And if you don't know who Edgar Pingleton is, you'll definitely want to listen to this interview because not only is it a cool story... It's a very, very beautiful message. Super inspiring. We're talking about Adam Gaynor, guitarist from Matchbox 20, and now the head of Creationville. We can't wait for you to hear what he has to say. But first... Off Track with Hinch and Rossi is a CastBox original. CastBox is the fastest growing and highest rated podcast app on both iOS and Android, where you can find all your favorite podcasts. You can listen to Off Track with Hinch and Rossi wherever you get your podcasts, but we hope you'll give CastBox a shot because, well, we think it's the best. I know that first world problems are still problems. You literally said last week how much this pissed you off. The most frustrating thing. All right. Jeez. Let's move yeah. on. I'm glad that's over. Here's, Here's what, what grinds, grinds my gears. So, James, something that, that really annoys me, um, and actually happened while we were here at the compound, was someone was, we knew they were coming over, and they arrived, and they just walked in the door. No oh, knock. dude. No doorbell ring. No, nothing. It's look, it's one of those things where like some people are just super comfortable with people walking in their house 
And so they think that that means that everyone is comfortable and that they can just walk into other people's houses. It's absolutely ridiculous. I don't do that to people because I don't like it. Like literally the only time I will walk into someone's house without ringing the doorbell is A, if there's a big group and they all know we're coming over at a certain around a certain time, right? And we're having like a brunch or a dinner party, right? So like brunner. we do, yeah. we do brunner at right. my place regularly, and and so I know that between ten thirty and eleven or eleven thirty and twelve, whatever it is, that these people are coming over. We do it all the time, so it's fine, right? But like. And also, when I go over to Tim's house, you know, you can see, he only sits in one spot, so he sees you walk up. Yeah. Right. So I usually wave and tell you to come on right. in. Right. Yeah. And the only other exception is Marco's place, because if you ring the doorbell, he's not going to come answer the door. Well, like, so he well, assumes you're going to come. It, when I, if I text him, he will give the exact same answer every time. If I'm like, hey, Marco, I'm here, new phone, who dis? Every <laughs> single time. Well, and also, if you ring the doorbell, it's, it's not loud enough to actually get to his side of the house. <laughs> but the, here's the thing. The thing for me is just because you're comfortable with people doing that to your house, don't assume that everyone's comfortable with that. Oh, absolutely not. You know what I mean? Even if you, you know, like I come over to your house and if it's not like a group of people or whatever, I will always ring the doorbell. 100%. I will never just walk in. No. So James, like, I mean, man, I completely agree with you and it's, you're right. It's probably a comfort thing, but, but here's the thing that I can never be comfortable with. I'm going to go back to the original example of the person that came in to, to the compound. We knew they were coming. They were going to be guests on the show, but no point in anyone's life should they be comfortable with opening a stranger's door, sticking their head in and saying, Hey, is this where the podcast is? It seems weird. It yeah. seems like a weird move. I mean, because like, it's not like this particular person had been to this place. Absolutely like, not. So maybe we put a digit wrong in the text message with yep. the address. Yep. And, and then they just bar. What if they barge into somebody else's house? What if it's the wrong house? So, you know, like, we're being, we're being very protective to not say who it is, but we're not going to use this guy's interview anyway. So we're just going to say it. It was George Clooney. <laughs> he popped over. He just popped his head right in. Yeah, Garbage interview. We deleted it. Just because he's George Clooney, he can just walk through doors uninvited. But I think I feel like this, and you gotta, you gotta, you gotta correct me if I'm wrong here. But on a lot of these grinds my gears, I feel like I complain a lot, and it's things that just like in hindsight just sound like super Canadian. Like, oh, he didn't knock when he walked in. Or, no, that's, oh, they didn't. that's ridiculous. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. No, I mean even I agree with you on that, and I rarely, rarely agree with you on anything, including like. Like what? What front springs do you run again? Oh, so the, the front springs, and that was another grinds my gears. We'll be back with more after this. We are uh, thrilled to be joined today by Adam Gaynor of Matchbox 20 fame. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. God, it's a pleasure to be here when Beard, uh, beard Talk, beard, BeardBanter.org. Are you, are you a beard? Have you ever had a beard? You, you're you're kind of scruff right now. I'm really, for those of you at home, I am, I am wearing a seven, eight day beard and it's just pretty gross and I need to, sh I shave on Sundays usually, but for you guys, I saved it for one extra day. I'll shave tonight. You, you needed that look because you knew yeah. that we don't Poor shave. Guy. I had a feeling. I had yeah. a feeling I needed to be in the Beard Club, in the Beard Banter Club. So we'll get right to it. I mean, do you do you know much about racing? I know everything about sports. Oh, I am literally a encyclopedia. Everything, everything about, about sports. <laughs> so who won the two thousand seven um, NFC championship? Tiger game? Woods. Okay, <laughs> I think that might be right. Yeah, that I might think, be accurate. Yep. I, like, I, I, it doesn't sound right, but I don't know enough to say that it's not right. The Carolina Panthers, by the way, won the two thousand seven NFC championship yeah. game. If that's if Finn, that is correct, Finn's gonna get on the, he's, no, he's already broken. Adam's already laughing. He knows he knows that's not true. Okay, you Google that. You guys figure that out. So you're so you're a sports nut. What's I'm a your, big sports guy. What's your who sport? You, who did you say won? Carolina Panthers. Oh no, I know. I, I really <laughs> did. It was the Giants though. Yeah. Well, oh, that's right. Ah. Was that the year we won the Super Bowl? No, no six well, four eight eight two thousand eight. Seven, yeah, seven, eight, yeah. It was against the Packers oh, at Lambeau. That. Anyways, Giants anyways, fans, wow. You didn't anyways, know that. enough about me. So yeah, I just watch. <laughs> I watch. My deal is this: I watch every sporting event on TV every weekend. 
and then I triple speed through it like a robot. And when there's, let's say you're watching hockey, which I really don't watch a lot of, so I want, but I'll wait for a goal and then stop the button and it goes back eight seconds and I'll watch the setup. I don't have effing time to go through an entire game, so I'll look for highlights, but I can tell you what happened during the game. So did you like Cliff Notes as a kid? Did I what? Cliff did, Notes? Yeah. I was such a poor student that I can't even say I was a student. So it didn't even help. Cliff Notes would be like, I'd still be lost. He didn't even like reading the Cliff Notes. Yeah. <laughs> well, so it's funny, though, because you asked us before we went on air here, are drivers required to have a good sense of direction? Yeah. And, and the answer is absolutely not. No. And, and you, it seems <laughs> counterintuitive, but here's the deal. When you're on a racetrack, you can only go one way. Yeah, it's, it's true. The walls are your GPS. They make sure you turn yeah. right when you're supposed to turn right, left when you're supposed to turn left. Put me in a road but car however, one thing, and I'm sure it's the exact same with you when we get into your music, but like, if, you, if we bring up a song that you played 10 years ago and we asked you to like play it or play it close enough you could do that if you ask us to draw a track that we drove at 10 years ago we could roughly draw it and tell you oh, the yeah. gear we were in and, and the approximate speed and where you'd sure. break type of thing so for it's, sure um, i but, think i'm the anti-musician musician and i think if i had to learn all my old songs i would need two weeks to go back i could probably play five songs by heart and the rest i would literally have to go it's been 12 years since well no 14 years since 2004 after the third record uh, not in the band, and honestly could not remember. I would have to sit for a minute and really figure it out. It's really, but during the during the process, like on tour when like you're playing arenas, I could look in the sky boxes and watch a like a, a playoff basketball game and just desperately try to see the color of the jerseys. Like if my team with the Knicks were playing or somebody was playing, I would literally look at because the people in the sky boxes would be watching a big playoff game while they're enjoying the show. And I would just wait to see. It was so tiny, but you would look to see if the red team was celebrating. Then I would know it was the Heat <laughs> or if it was a white no jersey way. in the Knicks. So I'm on autopilot during the show and I could literally right. just look up. So then I'm tuned in, just like you guys sure. are during season tuned in. So like if, if you had to do it, if you had to pick up a guitar and play an old song you said you'd have to kind of figure it out like could you just read the music or would you just do it all by ear do you and read music another part of my un unread situation i don't read music i just it's do that, i did things by ear that's that's incredible so i would have i would probably what, what i did for pre-production even in the band years is i think i don't know we don't want to get me emotional but i'm who knows if i have a learning disability i don't know i feel like everything's really hard for me to relearn and learn I know I'm gonna get I'm gonna start crying, but but <laughs> I would sit on back in the day because this is a '90s thing. With you remember those Walkmans, the old the old Walkmans. I had a sport Walkman, it was yellow, and and a cassette, and I would sit on my bed before I had to go to pre-production, which meant we would spend three weeks working on our show before we would go into arenas. I'd be at home for two weeks going through each record on the bed with my little pickup and just trying to figure out the songs, and then be dialed in, get to pre-production be good to go and then once that's done you're on autopilot for the whole tour you're just like playing and not even thinking about it okay well i mean that's 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 crazy to me but it's also kind of a good segue into how this all started sure so when did you first started falling in love with music how when did you know you wanted to be a musician how did you learn are you self-taught you take lessons what's the start i think the joke is my sister was taking guitar lessons when i was probably in sixth grade or fifth grade and I was getting super jealous she was getting too much attention around the house so I would steal her guitar and go to the classes after school at the elementary school almost across the street from where I lived and then take lessons there and realized like I was actually pretty good at it and I was trying to show other kids the chords and that was just the beginning of thinking maybe I had some talent somewhere because I certainly wasn't scholastic. And is that something that became a, like a motivation of yours to that, you know, as you started playing and, and, and doing it, that you were like, I want to be a guitarist. I want to be in a band. I want yeah. this to be my life. I think it was weird because I was like an all sports guy. I played pr like, like uh, kids football, Pop Warner football basketball, baseball, like I was a super athlete when I was, when I was young. And I'd like to add, thank you for listening again. Um, I'd like to add that I was the second fastest in my county. I had speed, a very tall, lanky kid. For like what distance? For a 100-yard dash, 50-yard dash. Okay. Not a long distance. At like what age, though? Too much asthma. Um, at what age? Thanks for... Uh, you know, I was still fast back in the day of answering phones at Criteria in my 20s because the young kids, the kids I call them, they would challenge me to a little, a little parking lot race. I'd pull some, some muscles at, in their 20s, but I could still handle the, the speed. <laughs> Not pretty, though. 
No. Was it a very odd <laughs> duck for you? You okay. do 50 yards and you need a six-month recovery. <laughs> yes. At this point, yeah, yeah. I would say probably like five months. Yeah. So you liked sports. You were a natural athlete, but then music started taking over. Yeah. It, and, and the only breakthrough that I had as a kid was there was a song on the Eagles Desperado album called um, Outlaw Man. And I was playing it with my acoustic and I'm like... This sounds just like the record. Now, flashback, if we could edit this in, it probably was horrible. But I thought, <laughs> I thought it was the record. And I'm like, I'm Nailed good it. at this. I'm great at this. And then I had this dream that slowly manifested into a reality. So, so that's kind of when the dream started. It was like from that moment, yeah. like, hey, if I can sound like the Eagles, I can do this for a living. Yeah, I, I think I can do this. I think I could do this as a little kid. I thought I could do it. And then was that where the incentive or the opportunity, I guess, came to work at Criteria? Was it to to further your understanding of music or it was it was a it was a choice because i lived in south florida and at the time there was very little entertainment uh availability like j-lo bg's gloria stefan shack wasn't there yet diddy had just moved in it was literally like not an entertainment mecca and i was in south florida which is towards miami a friend of mine got me a job answering phones i wasn't even like an engineer or an okay. assistant engineer so i was a glorified phone boy to which I, a night phone boy and i would tell people i was the night manager but they wouldn't even give me that business card after like eight years i was like a 30 year old receptionist and i'm like just give me a night manager business card so when i go out to the bars i could tell the ladies i have a cool job and no you're a phone boy i'm like great i'm a phone boy so so i put myself in this place people like lenny kravitz would come through for the weekend and rem would do albums there back in the day james brown did i feel good at criteria oh, studios right. Eric Clapton did Layla there. Oh, Eagles yes. did Hotel California. Oh, really? Yes. So it was like the place to be wow. in the 70s, sure. part of the 80s, and then in the 90s it was doing this transition um, over. And, and I just had to put myself somewhere. And the end of the whole story is Collective Soul was there. I became friends with the guys in the band. I became friends with their producer. Both guys offered me, this is a very short version of the story. Both guys offered me two things. One guy had his manager send me a production deal, the singer of Collective Soul, to be a solo artist. And then the producer of Collective Soul called me, asked if I wanted to hear a demo, which turned out to be Rob Thomas and the original guys looking for new guitar players, auditioned for them, uh, got called back for a second audition, and then got the gig. That's the long version story. What, what's the audition process like? Is it literally just you get in the room with the guys and they say, play this song, and yeah. that's, that's it? That, when I went, it was super casual, um, and it was just like Rob and, and the, the producer picking me up at like a Motel 6 I was staying in the night before, and, um, and then getting in the car, and Rob was like super excited and hitting me in the back of the head, and it was like I was ready to go, and you know, I'd learned the, the demo of what I had to do, and then when you're in a little rehearsal room, just the, the it was the four of us at the time, they wanted one guitar player, but because I only knew four chords, and they liked me, <laughs> thank God. My joke is Rob only knew three chords, so I happen to know the fourth one, that's how I got the gig. <laughs> got it. <laughs> so, otherwise, still answering phones. So, Adam, there's one story, I don't know if you can tell it on the air, but there's one story I always liked when, when start with we that. used yeah. to hang out was... Um, Very scared. Where, when you guys were picking a name for the band, yeah, because like you had like a story you'd give people, but then you you told me like I, there's yeah, a real our, one behind it. Our drummer um, basically had a dad who was in World War II. He was in a submarine, and the the they were doing training uh, mission off of San Francisco, and the ballast tank broke, and he went down, and oh, wow. he was like thinking he was going to die. And the, the dad was like freaked out and he reached into his pocket and like all he had was like 20 matches and a pack of cigarettes. And it was like, like he just thought that was the end of his life was going to be with what this. This what, is not the real wait, story. Wait, this is not the real story? <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, you guys. This is the fake. My bad. I didn't know what. <laughs> And you guys are both like your mouths are open, like oh my god, this, this is poor a, guy. This is incredible. this never happened. Yeah, this I, I I forgot what he said to say the true story. My bad. <laughs> Got <laughs> it. I did not. I, my bad. I mean, you're talking about deep, yeah, deep, being deep. It was heavy. Yeah. I mean the the sub. Sure. <laughs> That's why it sunk really fast. Too heavy. Yeah. Super heavy. So the real story, which by the way, you're going to be like, wow, I, I like the first story better. Is um our our we were trying to we had a 72 hour rule. This is true. I've, I, now I don't believe anything I'm saying, which is a, which is a problem. And, um, and we were throwing around names like Twill, 
Big Shoe Spiders, which by the way, I really like that name. That was like my idea. Um, Big Shoe Spiders, Twill, our producer thought the Puritans was a good idea. And, um, and then our drummer had like a matchbox thing and a, a, a patch on a, on a jacket. And he's like, what about matchbox 20? And I'm like, no. Like, there's like Smash Mouth, Candlebox. There's like everything's 20, some 41, this and that. I'm like, bad idea. Now, here's another deal. If you, th- if you were Eddie Vedder's neighbor, Alex, let's just say that for Eddie comes over. He's like, hey, Alex, I'm going to start a new band. And it's going to be called Pearl Jam. You would have been like, bad idea. Never going to work. Right. Ba- so the truth is, it doesn't matter the band. Our singer, Rob Thomas, wrote amazing songs and hits. But I didn't. I was not. A pro, I voted no, and it, nobody thought of something better in seventy-two hours. The band makes the name, right? The, you, yeah. the band makes the name a household yeah. name, regardless. You could be called Wood, and it's fine. Exactly. As long as you have a good song. Exactly. So when you got the gig, because of the fourth chord, uh, <laughs> did, was it like was it straight to recording an album? Was it were you already going on tour with some other stuff, or like what? It was super crazy, and and I'd say fast considering it was about seven months before we broke like a like it was quick. So. We were thrown, we did another audition up in Atlanta for uh, another guitar player and, and another vocalist. I sang backgrounds, and so, so we got another guy who sang and played, and then we were just thrown into like a 10 by 10 rehearsal studio, and it's like the Brian Adams song, Played Till Your Fingers Bled, literally our producer, and in the best way, killed us because we were not a band and we were being asked to make a major record on a major label. It was a sub-label of Atlantic, but it was being considered to be you know, under Atlantic's wing. And, um, and we didn't know, we had no gig experience. Like in my life, by the way, let's just admit this, I like hosted a coffee house acoustic guitar night, that's my former claim to fame, and had two garage band gigs as like a 16 year old. And now I'm being thrown into the situation. It's weird. It's that like, was it. It's like wow. you driving the Indy. You you won a, an Indy car championship, yeah. Mr. Alex, right? Indy 500. Indy 500. Yeah. yeah, sorry about that. Yes, Indy 500. Yeah. Very proud Thank of you. you for that. Appreciate that. So, so you went from literally like coffee shops and a garage band when you were 16. To playing sold out arenas like in two years. Yeah, it's weird. So when did you realize that there was... <laughs> I threw that in, by the way. When did you realize there was something special? Like, um, was it when you went to your first gig? No, and, and that's a great question. Um, the, when I drove up to or, from, from South Florida to Orlando, it was a four-hour drive. You would have done it, by the way, in two hours. But when <laughs> I – and don't say an hour and a half. Oh, in like hour 50. Okay, hour 45. So, so I, I um, drove up, and before we did the first tryout for me, we went to the producer's like aunt's house, and Rob sat on a couch and played me parts of our first record – that he had kind of done somewhere ideas acoustically. And I went from, I, you know, whatever. If I get the job, great. If I don't, I don't care. I'm just back to answering phones. And I went from, holy S, this is unbelievable. Like, I did not realize the talent because I had only heard a cassette demo. And that was nice. But when you heard him sitting on a couch with just an acoustic, that immediate moment I knew this was this was huge and special like I actually knew that this was going to go great that's amazing yeah you he's just, very talented dude just tell right away I, I had that it I had no doubt I never worried about are we going to make it are we going to sell I like I just all my commercial barometer which I make a joke that I might I might have been the worst guitar player in MTV history but my my commercial barometer from what I do with my company or whatever I think that's my gift and just knowing who was sitting in front of me I, I absolutely knew like we were in great hands so you, you, you have this point as a kid where you decide listening to your record and playing uh, Eagles that you want to be a rock star. You do it. Yeah. You spend a decade, essentially, yeah. in one of the biggest bands. Was, was life as a rock star what you expected? Thanks for listening. Here's the deal. So I think that, for, you know, I don't, I don't know how to say this nicely. It wasn't what, like, okay, for me, it was Bible studies and orange juice, right? You know, you go play your show, you go home in the room, have a little orange juice, look <laughs> at the Bible a little bit, even though I'm Jewish. So it's like, a, that was sure. a weird, that was like even weirder. because I. <laughs> so, so, I, so it wasn't, okay, I did pretty good. I was, thanks for listening, America. I was a quality <laughs> over quantity guy. I'm not, I'm not, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know how to say this because there might be one person out there in the world that actually kissed me while I was on the road and I don't want to embarrass them. Is there a surprising <laughs> side of, of life in that, in that situation? Um, like, what, what was the biggest surprise? I think today the biggest expect. surprise is that I did it at all. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> that, is, 
Alex, I sw- when you reflect, I'm an old guy, right? Sure. I'm 54 years old, and I know I look great. Thank you for, for yeah. saying that. <laughs> Not a day over 55. Thank you. That's weird. <laughs> so so um, I... I don't know. Like I used to get like mad when people would say you're lucky. You're so lucky. And I'm like, dude, I sat and answered phones for eight years to be in that position to make my luck. Today, I'm like, I think I was kind of lucky. I really do reflect. Like I, I worked really hard to do what I did. I really did. I had to work probably twice as hard as another musician because I felt like I had to be the fitting in guy. You know, like kind of get into you know being a rhythm guitar player is not about being a shredder, it's how to be a band, like a team dude. You guys have teams. Sure, but I mean, obviously the lifestyle that comes with it is, is interesting and unique. And sure. one of the opportunities that came to you as a result of that was Millionaire Matchmaker. Oh my God, thanks for listening about yeah. this one. So Millionaire <sighs> Matchmaker was, I, what, this is a very long story in 20 seconds. Okay. I moved to, to where are we, California? We are there, yes. I believe at, so. At the moment. Moved to California. I'm not even embarrassed by Millionaire Matchmaker, by the way, because I'm going to tell you why and what, what good it did. I pitch him this crazy idea, and I dump like, like a, a knapsack of art and, and illustrations and my guitars there. I, I didn't bring the poodle, but I almost brought the jumping sport poodle. Like, and, a, um, like a real poodle yeah it's like it's a great dog not a plush no it's a a really this is a tough one because I'm very sensitive right now Um, I I could get emotional I'll show you a picture of my dog and you could say sissy dog or really cool and I'll let you judge yeah I'll let you judge because it's my it's my soul I mean I have a mini golden doodle so I'm not going to judge well that's I have a multi-poo I've got a cock-poo oh my god this is the man's man's table we're not embarrassed by our weird four legs so it's all good tiny dogs and beers so anyways for the third time Millionaire matchmaker. <laughs> okay, so so he didn't even go on, did he? he I know. I apologize about the story. I got so excited by the dog talk. So I literally take my first Hollywood meeting. CAA says, "Oh my God, I love this idea. It's crazy, and it's a pretty big agent over there." And the second he goes, "I love the," like literally, the fire alarm goes off. And if you could do like a Larry David weird moment where I'm looking around, like, "Wait, what did you say?" Like you said you want to do a show about me, and then the, the, and I'm like, "What's going on?" And they're and everybody's scrambling. I hear fire doors closing around CAA, and I'm like, "Is this like real?" Like what? So he's like, "No, we have to evacuate." I'm like, "What?" So wait, I'm like, "Wait, you just said you want to do a show about me?" So I'm packing up my duffel bag. We're in. If you can imagine me and every suit executive. It's walking down a fire stairwell and I'm like so and we have to go out to the courtyard they're like all right well we'll be in touch I'm like hold on well you literally just said you want to do a show about me and the fire alarm went off on that second and now yeah I can actually see that as a curb your enthusiasm. Was, like I can literally picture Larry David in that situation. I'm carrying a guitar, a knapsack, talking to all the suits and me, the idiot, like walking down this thing. So they're like, we'll be in touch. And I'm like, I leave all deflated. Like, are you kidding? They're not going to be in touch. The next morning, they set me up with three production meetings for like three Bravo kind of production companies. One of them was a company who does Millionaire Matchmaker. So I went and visited with everybody. Nobody wanted to do a show about me, which was really one of the most heartbreaking stories of my life because I haven't done anything. So then um, I... <laughs> Listen, guys, I'm, I'm sad. I, I want to do more. You, you've done a lot, though. I've done nothing, honestly. You, you have. I woke up and drove here. That's, that was my accomplishment for this part that of my life. That is something. You I mean, all of us. I, I woke we up. Yeah. Slept here. We rolled off the bed <laughs> yeah. and walked here. It's weird, too, because I was so focused and everybody was like sleeping when I got <laughs> So anyway, the millionaire, millionaire matchmaker, matchmaker people <laughs> call me. They call me. And after the interview, they're like, we don't want to do a show about you, but would you do our show? And I'm like, no, I am not going to do your show. That's not, the last thing I want to do is move to Hollywood and do a dating show. They called two weeks later. They said, look, we're doing a celebrity version this year. We have an Olympian and some G, I see, I'm, by the way, I'm a G list celebrity, which means I'm one below F and like (laughs) two below E. We're like J, so you're, you guys. No, you guys are not. You guys are relevant. You guys, I would put you at a solid D. You're a D-list celebrity. Oh, That's the nicest thing anyone's yeah. ever said to thank us. You. Adam, thank, thank you. you. Really thank you. And I'm a hardcore job. Like, there's only, like, ten guys in A. Like, I only give you the, the Brad Pitts and the Tom Cruises. To me, Jack Black is like a B. I'm sorry. He's not an And a you're putting B. us at a D? Yeah, you get a D. You need to adjust your scale. No, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm a G-list celebrity, and I'm proud of that. I'm, like, one below failure. Like, one below the F. <laughs> You're knocking on the door of failure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. millionaire matchmaker. You'll, you'll get there someday. Yeah. So yeah. millionaire matchmaker. So, so they call and I'm like, you know, definitely not. Like, that's not what I want to do. So, so they call every two weeks and they're telling me like people I've never heard of are doing the show. And I'm like, 
That's not like you tell me Brad Pitt and like Tom Cruise. I'm like, yeah, I'll be the worst of the worst goldfish in the bowl. But so finally, after two months of literally calling me every two weeks, I thought about what can I do to change my life again? Now, this is for, for the listeners, and I like to say the viewers because I don't know what I'm doing. So for the viewers at home who are listening. <laughs> so I say, how can I change my life again? Now, here's the deal. When I had that offer to go try out in a band for the Matchbox 20 kids who were formerly a different band, I looked at this proverbial door over my head, and this is for the, for the viewer listeners at home. And I said, well, I could sit there and there's this door and there's this light behind it and I was afraid to go through the light. I didn't think I was a guitar player for a band. I thought I was a singer-songwriter guy like, like Adam Duritz or James Taylor. Like I'll write acoustic songs. So I was scared to audition. But I said, look, I'm going to open up that proverbial door over my head. There's weird light. And the worst thing that happens is I go through it and they laugh at me and they tell me to go home because I suck. And then I'm back where I started the next day. No big deal. So for this instance, I'm like, what can I do to change my fate again? They're giving me a proverbial door of 1.7 million viewers. That's how I looked at that opportunity. As dumb as it was to think about this being a dating show, I was looking at it like, how can I turn this into a business opportunity? So I made three rules with them. One, we wouldn't talk about some girl that I had dated that the host knew that I dated and it was like a whole political thing. Rule number one, yep. Rule number one. Rule number two was they would let me show my company and my plush toy and the things I was doing to get eyeballs on Creationville. And three was they let me be the first person to ever play something acoustically because at the time I thought I was going to be promoting iTunes a lot more than I wound up doing. And they agreed to all of them. And the producers protected me like you could not believe how amazing they were. It was an A-plus look for me because I came across great. I didn't let her get me all worked up. I'm, I've done 4,000 shock jock morning interviews. Right. I don't get worried about who's sitting in front. I don't care if it's Howard Stern, which I, we didn't do. I'm good with people, so I can handle pretty much whatever. So I did the show. Um, it was kind of, you know, it was fun. The crew loved me. I had everybody laughing all day, and it came across good. But, yeah, it's, it was weird to do a dating show, but it, it came across good. I signed, a, a, like, my first $50,000 advance from a girl who wrote me about a, a toy and then um, asked if I wanted to do this toy with her, and that's, I did change my world a little bit from that. You can stay in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle is askofftrack, or you can take a screenshot of this episode and share it on your Instagram or Snapchat story. We're also taking emails at ask at offtrackpod.com and phone calls at 317-731-2372. If we like what you have to say, we'll mention it on the next show, so you better make it pretty good. What is creation, though? You mentioned that. So I know, I feel, am that. I talking too much? I no. think on the podcast, other people talk. No, it's, no you're, you're the guest. You're, you're the, the guest. guest. Yeah. We, we people have, hear us all the time. We have other segments that will be on this show. Wait, there's not going to be me the whole time? <laughs> <laughs> I mean... If Creationville is really cool. So it's it's a it's an entertainment media company that we do like animation, children's books. Um, I'm actually filming some. Uh, I say adult, but it's like HBO. Um, uh, what is that thing? Adult Swimmy thing that I'm excited about because it's more of my voice, meaning I'm more of a wise guy, kind of funny writer person. But yeah, I'm just really proud. I started this. 2008, we incorporated the company, and I've been really working hard on it for six years. How? What did it start with? Because you, you seem, it sounds like it's in a lot of different uh, yeah. facets of yeah. entertainment. Yeah. I like to say it's one zillionth of DreamWorks, but it's not even financially there yet. But it's like <laughs> it's like it's all the IP properties. We build content. We build brands. So I have all these characters, and it just started with me dabbling around Photoshop on a bus really? because I was bored. And I just took a bunch of weird pictures. I liked a lot of photography, colored the backgrounds of trees to be like purple and weird. And then try, I'm not a freehand artist, so I've had to work with freelance artists all these years. But I was making these weird characters, and I'm like, this is really fun. I wish I could upgrade the talent level a little bit and do something with this because this feels cool, weird, trippy. And it just started with kind of me messing around into hiring one person and then realizing, wow, I may have an actual like talent at, at being an art director and putting together teams of people and creating really cool properties. So I just went on the website, which yes, is cool. And creationville.com. Creationville.com. I'm reading a quote, which is pretty spectacular. The idea of Edgar is that you can give and receive unconditional love from something that isn't perfect. Yeah, That's pretty cool. I like that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so and that this whole concept was was your brainchild and everything. Yeah, Edgar's my my guy. It it Edgar was derived from an artist 
that I've never told this story, so I'm going to give you a little Walt Disney. By the way, that Walt Disney was probably an A-lister, so um, again, <laughs> that, that makes sense. Yeah, it's yeah, sacrilegious that, that, for me. He has a world and a land. Yeah, he has a land and a world. <laughs> great, great point. Yeah. <laughs> by the way, that was very regal. That reminded me of like a medieval thing, but he does have a world and a land. So Edgar Pingleton is my. He's like he is my Mickey Mouse. That's why I said the Walt thing. I have all these projects and stuff, but Edgar is the dude that I hope when I'm 70, which the joke is that's not too far away. When I become 70, I just want to give him away for free because it makes me really happy. So Edgar, you'll see it when I bring him in, is this imperfect creature that we don't know if he's a bunny, we don't know if he's a dog, he's got some bruises on him, he might be missing an eye, but, but it's really cool. And he just, he personifies the idea that you can give and receive unconditional love from something that's not perfect, which is a good message to Great just message. tell people, to Wonderful, tell kids. Yeah. And it makes me very, very proud. So um, yeah, that's Edgar, and we finished his children's book last year, and I'm gonna be, I'm doing a different book this year, and then I'm going to try to shop a publishing deal for everything. I can honestly say you have a new fan with me, so that's, that's pretty cool, man. I appreciate it. Is Edgar yes. going to have a show at some point? Edgar's the one property that I'm trying to hold on to by breaking a couple others, and I can finance Edgar myself properly. Um, I'm self-funding my whole operation, which has been super expensive to do. I mean, it's been a lot of money over all these years, but I'm very proud of what I do, and I'm proud that I've done it myself, which is another good lesson that I haven't asked people for money for no reason and gone crazy and spend a ton of money. I've, I've been very slow and steady because it's been my, my wallet. So, um, yeah, at some point I'd love to have a show for Edgar. I have some concepts for that. And the book will be first and the plush toys. I'm going to try to do a big campaign with them this year and see what happens. Very cool. Very cool. Is this an appropriate time to break into the lightning round? I think so. Oh, my God. I'm so scared. I mean, I mean see, so, so hold on. We, we, we do have to say there's, there's, there's two firsts, actually, that are happening right now. Uh, Adam claims this is his first time on a podcast. Oh no, mate, did I do one? Before? Did you just research that I did another one? Because I really don't think I did. Did I? No. No, okay. no. no I'm, I'm saying it. This is, you said this was a first. So. I thought I was lying again. No, no, no. I, it's, I'm, it's, this is a genuine thing. This is your first podcast. And this is uh, also the first time Thim hasn't unnecessarily interjected during the podcast. <laughs> he's been too quiet. I think he's been no, too quiet. No, he's me. definitely done that. No, yeah, no I've chimed in. I'm oh, okay. There you go, right there. Yeah. yeah. So the other first uh, is, as far as we know, it's the first time one of our guests has actually heard an episode of Off Track before the whole, coming in. The whole oh, wow. podcast. Not even, it was going to be the first four minutes because I told them <laughs> I would just take a gander. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you actually listened to the show. So yes. you are the first person that knows that yeah. the lightning round exists. Yes. Uh, you'll also probably be aware that the lightning round isn't what it sounds like. Yeah. It doesn't. Fast, yes, that didn't, it, rapid fire. We should to be fast. We, we should really change the name. name to the round. <laughs> to the continuation of the yeah. Episode. It's yeah. just the, more the round, yeah. formerly known as lightning, as, <laughs> as in um, we'll keep talking. So, Adam, <laughs> well, yeah. between between us, yeah, what's the fastest you've ever driven? Wimpley eighty five ninety. Don't think I even cracked hundred. That's the fastest you've ever driven. But we talked yeah. about how fast I was on my feet. Like that was like lightning like <laughs> that's where you got your adrenaline rush yeah don't give me metal to hide behind just give me my two shoes yeah. <laughs> i think he just called us wusses if you want to go outside right now Given i will stretch for a I, will, living. I will stretch right now i mean i'll race you i can't do it i'm too old after 50 into it. you don't do things like that anymore. you don't stretch anymore i could literally go to the hospital <laughs> Most underrated Matchbox 20 song. Long Day to Me was like a big hit for us, but it never was a hit. We even did a video for MTV that played it once or twice, um, and it just died. And then we had another song on the first record, and the, here's the, the bragging part. So we had too many singles on our first record. So we had like five hits. And we had another song called Hang, this beautiful, beautiful song that we were all convinced in a label that it could have been a single, but they wanted us to get off the radio because it was too much. What's the largest crowd you ever remember playing for? This is the best story ever. Okay. And by the way, it's a place you guys may be familiar with. Okay. Have you ever heard of a little track called the Texas Motor Speedway? We have. Okay. Yeah. It was billed as the world's largest ticketed event. So this is not going to be a normal question. We'll have to go to level B. At the time of the Rolling Stones playing, there were a half a million people there at the really? Texas Motor Speedway. All of the gallery... All of the infield, in in everything was filled with people as much as you can have. When we played, by the way, we were the first. This was, this was very early in our career. We were the first of nine bands. So when they announced our name coming up to open the show, we were backstage. 
And the 250,000 people that were there when we played to open the show, the roar of them announcing our name, I will never forget what you feel backstage with the chills. So that was unusual, and you couldn't see as far as the people were. It was just so surreal. And then a normal big gig after that, I mean, like, like we just we sold out all the arenas across the United States and Canada. So whatever that really is, is that's the average. Kind what of year thing. was this? Last summer. <laughs> no, I was going to say this morning. I'm usually fast. Um, it, this was from I was in the band from '95 to 2004 for the first three records. So this the the Texas Motor Speedway, and here's the difference between us. We talked about. Do you remember tracks? And I'm amazed that golfers can go through not just 18 holes of what they did that day, like on 12, I hit this. I'm like, I can't remember one arena I play. I can remember five arenas. Do you know the difference, I think? Drugs and alcohol? Well, I mean, have you I, played golf? No. <laughs> no. Most of them are really? pretty drunk. Yeah. Um, no, you're doing the same thing yeah. every time. You're yeah. doing the same show. Aren't you guys? No. Every race different is different. Tracks, every yeah. lap is different. I got you. That's you know, a really the, good point. The James. same track the next year is a very different race. Yeah. Where you can go back to Madison Square Garden and it was like, oh, was that the first time we played MSG? Or was it the second time we played? It was MSG, I think. You know. So it's you guys are doing the yeah. same thing. Where golfers, it's always different. You know, you remember the twelfth on that thing because you shanked it. Or and the most amazing thing, which people ask me all the time, is I was never bored playing the same song four thousand times. I swear to God, really? I wasn't. I never. I, I think. I don't know. It was just different audience. You're just trying to do good for the peeps out there. And I never was like, damn it, if I have to play 3 a.m. one more time. That was, that was a question I always have wanted to ask someone in your position. Yeah. Is, a, do you get bored? And then B, what happens when you hear it on the radio? Does it bother you or is it like, this is cool? It's, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. It's, like, it's cool now. Like Now they have the 90s network. Yeah. So I make like $2,000 a month from the 90s network. Just because every time someone buys a new car, but that's it. Like I don't really make any more royalties and stuff. Best guitarist of all time. Being a non-musician musician, I would say Steve Jobs. <laughs> <laughs> I respect all the cool legends because I would, I just look at this like I'm the oldest guy in pop. That's my. Comment. But like, but, but was one of them particularly inspiring to you? No, no. You just respect them for what they do. I'll respect them all. Beatles or Rolling Stones. Damn it. Damn it. Today? Okay. I Two-part answer because it's never easy. <laughs> Beatles for the pop sensibility of Rolling Stones because they're so damn cool. And that's on my playlist that I do to my walks. It's just the more older I get. I don't know why because I'm the same age as them maybe. Um, I, I just so appreciate that weird groove and what they do and how sloppy, cool, badass it is. But Beatles, I'm a pop music commercial guy. So that is almost the most difficult question. One is so damn cool. And they both were cool in their own way. Thank you, Paul, for listening. <laughs> yeah, Sir Paul's a subscriber. He did, he's a big fan. Last show you binge watch. I watch a lot of TV. So okay. don't think I'm being snobby. Like, sure. I don't have time for TV. I have too much time for TV. Right. <laughs> so if I, I tape every show on TV. And my TiVo is, like, way full. So it's always sure. at 98% and wheezing. So it's, like, it. it's like, watch something in a race. Help me. Yeah. yeah. So I just started season two this weekend of Stranger Things, which I know oh, I had to get show. through the first season again because I didn't remember one. Remember, I'm the guy that can't remember because I don't remember anything. So I had to fast forward through a lot of the first season and I didn't have the patience. I did it this weekend, caught up, and now I'm on like the fifth episode. Cool. of Solid show. All right. All right. That is the lightning round. The most poorly named segment in all of podcasting. Especially with me. All right, so that brings us to Battle Royale. Round one. Fight. Oh, no. So, Adam, like we said, you're one of the first guests that's actually listened to this show, so yeah. you're familiar with what Battle Royale is, but for people listening, if you don't know, I give them a group of characters, whether they're real or fake, and you have to imagine that there's a uh, brawl with all of those characters. And you have to say who you think would be the winner in that physical fight. I will choose the winner. We will also then put a poll up on our Twitter. Your guys' characters for today are the cast of Sesame Street, or the characters from Sesame Street. I, I think that Bert is so nasty that, um, that he's like smoking and drinking beer, and he's going to be just super angry at everyone. I, I, I could see that out of Bert, if I'm honest. Yeah. I think there's a dark side to Bert. Yeah. Alex, what do you got? Big Bert. Okay. Nice. Are you why? Just just because of the size. size. Okay. Yeah. I had a feeling that you might choose Big Bird. <laughs> I almost wanted the two-headed monster. 
Well, that you guys know there's a vampire on the show, right? Just, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you sure that's not oh, a Muppet? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> count, count, count. What's his count? Count, count, count. Um, but the problem with vampires is all you have to do is wear garlic and then they they, they lose. So, it's a good or like fight in the day. Also, they can't do that. Yeah, fair. So fair. So so you lose, but you're not even playing. I thought Big Bird was going to be one you might go with, and it seems like the obvious choice, right? Because he's the biggest one. Now, you're forgetting that there is, in fact, like a woolly mammoth on the show, Mr. Snuffleupagus, yeah, right? But love at the it. same time, I think those are both very docile creatures. So I don't think that's necessarily the right... Here's the guy I'm going for. What do for. you got? I'm going for Cookie Monster, and I'll tell you why. He doesn't get out of the garbage can. No, that's Oscar, that's Oscar the Grouch. <laughs> that's why Oscar... Yeah, you literally... Did you have a childhood? So <laughs> Cookie Monster, and this is why I'm going with him. He's, he's larger. He's got some strength behind him, but he also has this, like... He's got that rage, insatiable yeah. rage for cookie. Like it's like it's like a like a drug addict. Like when they need their drugs, they get angry. But, but and if he's not getting his cookies, he's gonna be hangry, and he will just wipe. If you just tell him cookie, cookie, there's a whole box of Oreos for was, you. If you win this fight, everybody's. But everybody's if I was going into the arena, I would have like a bag of Chips Ahoy and fling one down. He yeah. would fall on the ground trying to eat it, and I'd kick him in the teeth. Do I, I know what I would do? I would serve gluten-free cookies, and he'd be. Wouldn't be that interested. Yeah, but look, he's so obsessed. Yeah, he only wants his one. Right, he doesn't want to. I'm also there feeding him Oreos. Like, no. Cookie. Why are you there? Why are you there? Why are you there with your gluten-free cookies? We're all there, apparently. <laughs> okay, so we've got Big Bird. Wrong. We had what? Who did you say? Again? I'd say Bert. Oh yeah, Bert. Which I like that. There's a dark side of Bert. Yeah, Cookie Monster with the rage, the crack addict rage. Thim. No one went with Oscar. No one did Oscar. Because he, he can't get out of the He's in the trap. But that's, that's defensible, though. Like, yeah, but he's put not a lid on it, anyone. and then you yeah. throw him in a lake. Yeah, but Big Bird, <laughs> Big Bird, I don't know how you take him down. <laughs> he's got very I, skinny legs. He's, he's got tall. the skinny legs. Tiny legs. Yeah, he's top That doesn't mean he's dead. He doesn't he's even have arms to swing at you. He's got wings. What's he going to do? He's going to air you to death? He can fly away. He's got a big beak, though. He could literally fly away. No, he's like he's like an ostrich. You can't fly. He's one of those birds that I agree. Can't fly. And he's you like don't the, know that. He's the he's ultimate fighter that if you kick out his legs, he'll never get off his back. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> this is this is a close one. I think I'm... Uh, Tim, I I'll buy you uh, a margarita. I'll buy you one more of whatever he's on. I'll read your next script. Adam wins. <laughs> As the only person who's actually read one of my scripts, Adam wins. Um, I've read pages of some <laughs> of them. Fair. No, you actually, you guys all have. Thank you very much. <laughs> Their faces Thank were you. hard. Um, uh, so, so we're going to put this on Twitter so that you guys can uh, you guys can figure out if you agree with me or not. But I'm I'm giving this one to uh, Adam Gainer. Thank you. Uh, I'm applauding. That's for ask off track, by the way, on Twitter. So why didn't Miss Piggy win? Okay. She's a Muppet. She's a Muppet. On that, on that, <laughs> on that bombshell, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, this has been another uh, <laughs> another episode of Off Track with Hinch and Rossi, Mr. Adam Gainer. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey everybody, thanks for sticking around for the race recap. So that is a wrap on the DXC 600 uh, Verizon IndyCar Series race at Texas Motor Speedway. And what a night it was, Alex. Tires was kind of the story of the race in Texas. Sure. You know, it's it's a new car, new aero package. The track was resurfaced back in 2017. Still a lot for us to figure out and learn. And uh, we were having some problems with blistering. Luckily, no safety concerns. You know, Firestone did a great job of giving us tires that uh, were very safe to run on. But different teams were having different issues, whether it was losing the fronts, losing the rears, the left sides, the right sides. And uh, it made for a pretty interesting race, I got to say. I mean, so for the layman and Tim, um, what a blistering tire means is like actual chunks of rubber get peeled off from the surface of the tire. And at the end of a 30 to 60 lap stint, depending on, on how aggressive your car is on tires, literally the tire will look like Swiss cheese. So that's obviously very poor for grip and, and something that's very difficult for, for drivers to kind of keep a balance in their car. But as James kind of mentioned, it is pretty amazing that despite this, there was never any safety concern from Firestone and there was no tire failures whatsoever. So that's that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, on the, yeah, on the broadcast, it looked really cool. Like, Well, you could just see how much they really were blistering. It looked like they had like two specific lines in each tires of blisters, which was kind of amazing. Well, yeah, so Alex, tell us a little bit uh, a little bit about your night. Obviously, ending up on the podium, another, uh, another strong run for the, the 27 Napa car. Was your night straightforward? Was it a little more difficult than uh, you wanted it to be? How'd it go? I think everything at Texas is difficult. Um, 
and it's never straightforward. So a good point. This, this was the first Texas race that I've actually kind of finished. So that was <laughs> definitely a step in the right direction. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it was, it was very hard. I think that was probably, it's, it's by far, that was the hardest race for me of the year from a mental standpoint, really from a physical standpoint as well. Um, you know, it, it was, it was just challenging. It was a long, hot night in Texas. So I was very happy to not only bring the car home in one piece, but to, to be third and to, uh, you know, kind of redeem ourselves a little bit from the flunder, flounder, flunder, screw up, we'll put it that way, in, in uh, Detroit. So, yeah, great effort by the whole team. Ryan was fifth. Obviously, you spoiled our Andretti Autosport 3-4 party, which was rude of you, but... Um, You're welcome. How was your night? <laughs> that, was, that was pretty good. I was really surprised, honestly, when, like, Rob Edwards, my strategist, came on. He was like, it's, it's uh, Scott, Simon, you, James, Ryan. I was like, wow, James had a good run from a really rough qualifying. So you guys found some speed, which is great, right? Man, that wasn't uh, condescending at all. <laughs> wow, I was so they, surprised to see James up there. That's crazy. Oh, oh he's going to finish one, huh? <laughs> no, but they've, they've been struggling so much. I mean, obviously, like, super speedways haven't been great for you this year. So, I mean, a fourth is pretty good. No, they have not. Uh, yeah, and 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 the struggles the struggles were real, and the struggles continued for us this weekend. We, you know, obviously didn't have the pace over uh, over the month of May, and and still haven't found what it is. And the car is slowing us down because had a pretty poor qualifying. Um, I think we started fifteenth or something like that. Just uh, just didn't have the pace in the car that we wanted. But you know, at Texas, we know that you can make moves, and and obviously we we've talked about it. It was going to be a tire conservation race. We knew that. And we really just focused on a long run car because we knew we didn't have a, a great pace for for short runs. And and that's what we did. We were able to be very, very kind to our Firestones and uh, ran longer laps than a lot of guys were able to stick to the three stop strategy and not have to go to the four. And it just got us track position when it counted, you know, and then we were we were actually looking really, really good there until that last caution came out um, for uh, I guess that was the the Will and Will and Zach crash because Everybody was trying to make a fuel number. A couple guys were trying to check out and do an extra stop, but you know we knew we were good on our tires, and, and we thought we'd be in a, in a good spot. That yellow came out. Everybody pitted. Everybody had new tires for the last 30 laps, and, and like I said, we weren't great on short runs, but we had uh, a, a lot of moves on track, uh, some drama in pit lane that we overcame. So for uh, for us to come away with a top five in a speedway, given the, the struggles that we've had, very, very proud of the SPM boys and and bum for Rob. He was having a great race and uh, leading laps, running up front, and and you know just got caught up in one of those one of those Texas deals. You know, it's it's such a it's such a weird place, man. Like some of the time, you, you can't believe we're going. Like you're going around there, and you're just like, I can't believe we're doing this. But it's at the same time, it's so much fun, and, and it's always an exciting race. Is it? Is it, is it fun? <laughs> it's going well. It's fun. Yeah. I mean, the lap two forty eight was fun. <laughs> yeah, I won't lie. At the end of that last dash to the finish, I was pretty happy to see the checkered. And yeah. you know, we were we were on our way home shortly after that. So, I mean, in terms of you know um, momentum for you guys, this must be a big one. Obviously, with the huge disappointment that happened in Indy um, and everything, is this kind of the turning point that that you all were looking for 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 the five team? Yeah, we sure hope so. You know, we're heading to uh, to Road America next, then to Iowa, then to Toronto. And, you know, there's a couple of tracks there that we've run well at in the past. And, uh, you know, we're kind of getting back on our feet. We obviously had a, a lead engineer change um, after after the month of May, not not related to the month of May necessarily, but um, after, you know, before we got to Detroit. So working with a new engineer again and, uh, you know, we kind of needed that good result as a team just to kind of boost everybody back up, remind ourselves what we are capable of, that we can run up front with the Alexander Rossies of the world. And, uh, and hopefully, yeah, hopefully we can just kind of keep riding this, riding this success wave all the way to a so, solid top five championship position. All right. So there are two things I kind of want to dive into before we go. Just one, I mean, thoughts on, on Dixon. He's now the third most winningest driver in IndyCar. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised, honestly, like, you know, that that is a huge accomplishment and something that's amazing and something that we can all aspire and fail to get to. Um, <laughs> but I think Ryan brought up a really good point in, in Detroit last weekend and, and we were in a press conference and you got to understand that 
he did those 43 wins in the current day where cars were spec, where there's not huge amounts of mechanical failures, and he just outdrove people 43 different times. And when you look at A.J. Foyt, obviously what he accomplished was was incredibly stratospherically big, but it was in a different time, and really no one's come even close to what Scott has done in, in the current IndyCar era, um, which is depressing, you know. <laughs> Give <laughs> it time. Our, you got it. And yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty cool to be able to share the track with him. I mean, he he rocked up to the scene, you know, in his early 20s and started winning races. And, and, and you know, Alex hit it on the head there. Even, even Michael Andretti, who he just passed for third all-time on the win list, openly admits that it was way easier to amass 40 wins back in his day if you had the right combination of chassis, engine, tires, and you were one of the two or three big teams. You know, Michael will say he was only really racing against three or four guys any given weekend for for a win. Uh, whereas today, you know, we've seen the level of competition in the IndyCar series is so high. Teams uh, from the top of the, the grid to the bottom are capable of winning races. It just makes it makes Scott's accomplishment that much more impressive. And he really just sets the bar in every category. You know, he's there. There is no there is no hole in his game. There's no chink in his armor. You know, as, as an IndyCar driver, he's just the all round absolute uh, you know, epitome of, of what you want in a, in a driver. So hats off to him and the whole Chip Ganassi team. Uh, very, very cool accomplishment. All right. So the one last thing we, I want to talk about before I let you guys go, we didn't have a recap after Detroit. We got to talk about the pace car. We got to talk. I think he was so intimidated that the Alexander Rossi was immediately behind him. He's like, I got to make sure I impress Alex. And he just got nervous. It could happen to anybody. It happens to me all the time when I'm in the same room as Alex. And, uh, and he just, yeah, he did what any, any normal person would have done when surrounded by greatness like that. I mean, to be fair, to be fair, that part of the track was extra slippery. Because, you know, 50-odd laps later, I kind of did a similar thing. <laughs> I didn't realize that was at the same part of the track. I think it was a, it, well, it was the same. Further down, but yeah, so, it's attached. I think the track conditions, there was probably some oil coming up. We do race on city streets. You know, there was probably something that would catch anyone out. It was pretty funny initially, and then I was, like, concerned because it was a big hit. And, like, when yeah. the car spun back around, like, all the airbags were on. Um and yeah, I didn't realize it was a guest driver at the time, so I thought it was Oriole, and then I realized it wasn't. And anyways, it was just a very weird thing to have happened. I don't know. Did did any of you see what iRacing put on yeah. Twitter? Yeah, that was funny. I actually posted on the at Ask Off Track Twitter. So I'll post it. Yeah. Here's the funny thing though about the whole, the whole deal. So like obviously, you know, first and foremost, everybody was okay. That was the important thing. Um, the 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 screenshot from the broadcast, you know, of the aerial view of a crash pace car and 23 Indy cars just parked on the racetrack was hilarious. <laughs> but I saw a report that said that uh, you know the the Corvette ZR1 or whatever the model was got 3.4 million dollars in exposure because of that, which was 70 times more airtime than it got on the Saturday race just for pacing the field and not crashing. So, I mean, in a lot of ways for Chevy, there was some perks of the whole thing. I will say it reminded me a lot of what John Green talked about when he said he almost uh, brake checked yeah. the pace car. <laughs> but uh. it was, He almost brake checked Pagano in the pace car. Yeah. All right, well, thanks for doing the recap, guys. <laughs> This has been Off Track with Hinch and Rossi. You can stay in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle is Ask Off Track, or you can take a screenshot of this episode and share it on your Instagram or Snapchat story. We're also taking emails at ask at offtrackpod.com and phone calls at 317-731-2372. If we like what you have to say, we'll mention it on the next show, so you better make it pretty good. We're also individually on Twitter at at Hinchtown and at Alexander Rossi. And if you want to, though we have no idea why you would, you can follow producer Thim at at the Tim Durham. All right, guys, we really hope you enjoyed our time with Adam Gaynor, learning about his time at Matchbox 20 and also about his new project, 
which I'm a, such a big fan of, Creationville. If you want to follow him on Twitter, his handle is at Adam Gaynor. The music you heard on this episode was written by Ryan Dan of Holland Patton Public Library, and the show is produced by Chris Boniello and Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate, as well as them himself, Tim Durham. Also, Peter Vincer, Matt Monreon, and Lucy Shen at CastBox. Off Track with Hinch and Rossi is a CastBox original. CastBox is the fastest growing and highest rated podcast app on both iOS and Android, where you can find all your favorite podcasts. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.